stumbled onto the sleeping giant. Let's throw our minds. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Sleeping Giant podcast. I am your host, Grayson Parker Marcotte, and I'd like to say thank you for joining me once more. Now, Before we begin, listen. Listen. Do you hear that? That is the steady, thrumming, rumbling, swell. It's the sound of sheer, unadulterated awesome that is about to go full-on ballistic at the end of this year, both in terms of Marvel and Star Wars fandoms. And it began with an oh-so-sweet program on Disney Plus called The Mandalorian. Yeah, you may have heard of it. And if you haven't, well, you need to fix your business forthwith. We're going to talk a bit about The Mandalorian in this episode, but first, I'd like to let you know also that uh, things are really starting to cook for the sleeping giant, and uh, this old boy is probably about to wake up and raise a bit of a ruckus that's liable to carry you on through into the new year. I can't wait to start peeling back the curtain because it's going to be awesome. Now, as a preview of what's in store, it is my great pleasure and honor to announce that this episode will feature a conversation I had with artist, animator, and director extraordinaire, Mr. Stephen E. Gordon. How about that? Uh, So, as we we get into this, don't forget to uh, follow or subscribe to the podcast or download episodes on the website, which is tsgpodcast.com. And uh, don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes because those ratings and reviews really do help. And, uh, of course, I'd love to grow my listenership, and uh, I would love it if you gave me a hand with that. Also, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at The Sleeping Giant Podcast and Twitter at tsg underscore pod. Now, in the meantime, y'all get comfy because we are about to begin. The anticipation for Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker is building for me little by little and day by day. And I admit that as the date gets closer, the, the vast and fertile field of patience I thought that I had has withered away quite quickly and is straight up scorched earth. I've said it before, but I'll utter it again here. I do not envy... Mr. Abrams in this gargantuan task of ending what is effectively one of the most popular and enduring sagas of human history. I mean, go home, Homer, am I right? Thou hast license to depart der Ring des Nibelungen. In all seriousness, though, uh, love it or hate it, or hell, uh, remain indifferent to it, Star Wars will be placed in that tier of appreciation and reverence. So yeah, uh, Abrams has got to wrap that up all nice and pretty with a bow that doesn't end up strangling him in the bargain. And and how is it all going to end? And will that end be also a beginning? I mean, it's like poetry. It's uh, it's it's got a rhyme, right? Um, I can tell you this though with a certainty. This go round, I'm just going along for the ride and. Uh, You know, I'm going to do my best to enjoy it, come what may. I aim, though, to be entertained, and I hope to be satisfied. 
And if I'm not, you know, oh well, right? Because you know who hasn't ever let me down? If you guessed Charles Soule, you would be 100% correct. And I don't know how the hell you guessed that with almost zero context, but but good on you. Uh, Soule's work on Star Wars has been nothing short of solid. Uh, peaking for me with his work on the Lando limited series and, of course, with Darth Vader. One of the main challenges to me, or at least one of the main challenges that writers of Star Wars seem to, to me uh, to face is whether or not they get the universe. And uh, Charles Soule, he definitely, definitely gets it. It's it's generally pretty easy for me to pick up on that in the first few pages of a book. And uh, Soule does not disappoint. Um, he does not disappoint there at all. One of the key factors also, I think, is giving Vader dialogue that you can hear him saying because Vader has a, a very unique cadence and a way of delivering lines that I'm I'm sure are difficult to uh, interpret or to to put down on paper and and be convincing. So um, again, Soul excels in this, and and further, both the Vader series and Lando are wonderful examples of how we can gain legitimate new insights into established characters whose circumstances we already we already know and and uh, the circumstances of course are also constrained by existing canon so uh, in Lando you have Lobot's relationship to Lando um, and that's especially heartbreaking and profound the way that that soul portrays it and uh, and then of course in Vader you have Anakin Skywalker's final transition into Lord Darth Vader beyond uh, being encased in that iconic black armor that we see at the end of episode three. So considering considering these things, I am beyond stoked that Charles Soule will be launching the newest volume of Marvel's main Star Wars title, which fills in the spaces between episodes five and six. Now, that period is probably my favorite one to explore, and despite my love for Soul's work, it's almost a shame that Shadows of the Empire has passed into legend status. And I know, I know, that gentle sound you hear is the soft tinkling of fanboy tears. But it is time to, uh, it's time to cowboy up, y'all. Let the past die. Kill it if you have to. Anyway, that book launches in January, I believe, so you will not be wanting for sweet, sweet Star Wars content this winter. But first, and before The Rise of Skywalker, we're getting Soul's four-issue run of The Rise of Kylo Ren, and I am super, th I'm super thrilled for that one. Uh, but my only concern is that because it precedes Episode Nine, we may not get into the real meat uh, of what we're all probably wanting from that book. Um, if it's a weekly release though, it's possible we'll get some of that juicy stuff, uh, to savor after the film. So again, I'm not 100% on the re release schedule of that book. So, so we'll see. Um, I do, I do have faith in Charles soul though. So, uh, we're going to bring it back gently to the realm of star Wars present now, uh, wherein, We've had The Mandalorian on Disney Plus 
for almost a solid month. We are up to episode three, and I'll say that it has been it has been incredibly intense thus far, uh, with each episode running um, for a, a, a less common now thirty or so minutes, uh, much in the way of television past. So this is set six months after the fall of the empire, and we're given a tour of this world that's been thrown into disarray and upheaval all through the eyes of the uh, our title character, the Mandalorian, as he shifts his behavior uh, within the story from a stone-cold mercenary to, to following his own moral compass after uh, re-securing a bounty that he had previously been hired to uh to procure for some seriously shady folks so um the creators have taken great care to peel back our understanding of both the the mandalorian as he's known as well as uh post purge mandalorian culture so it, it's been very fascinating to see it's uh, it's a breath of fresh air in the Star Wars universe, to be sure, but it's also a return to familiarity with a splash of nostalgia. Now, I'd like to get into more detail, of course, on The Mandalorian, uh, apart from saying that it is extremely cool, uh, but I will probably wait until... Um, I'll probably wait until my more Star Wars-centric episodes come to pass... I think that most of my UK listeners are dedicated and wily enough to have been keeping up with The Mandalorian through more creative means. But even so, I, I've already been burned with some uh, same-day spoilers myself. So, so there you have it. I'm not going to get too deep into The Mandalorian apart from saying it's extremely cool. But also, guys, come on. You know, even here in the States where we have Disney+, Plus. Okay, there are a lot of things that suck more than this, but one of the things that really sucks is using an app for communication like Instagram, for example, and and doing a little bit of scrolling and seeing a spoiler for The Mandalorian before I've even had a chance to sit down and watch it. And we're talking prime time, Eastern time. You know, I mean, the very first day, the first episode was spoiled for me on Instagram. So come on, guys, cut it out. Even so, if you love Star Wars... Uh, you know, all the the spoilery stuff aside, if you love Star Wars, then you absolutely need to get on The Mandalorian. I can't recommend it strongly enough. Speaking of Disney+, Plus, they are, they're killing it on the Marvel level as well. Not only is Disney+, Plus chock full of content, uh, up to and including the MCU films, it's also teeming with those animated programs from our childhood. Not only will you find the classic X-Men animated series from Fox, you'll find all sorts of Spider-Man content. You'll uh, also get your hands on some deeper cuts in the way of both X-Men Evolution as well as Wolverine and the X-Men. If you weren't already on board, you, you've just got to be now, especially once I bring on my next guest. With a career that includes being the character designer and director for the aforementioned X titles, he's also worked with Ralph Bakshi, Disney, Don Booth Studios, and has likely had a very strong creative hand in a lot of your favorites, including Bakshi's Lord of the Rings, 
Disney's Black Cauldron, uh, again, Bakshi's Fire and Ice, and then, of course, Anastasia, which was done with Don Blue Studios. So let's go ahead and dive into my conversation with the one and only Stephen E. Gordon and listen to what he's got to say. Hello, Steve. You there? Yes, I am. How are you doing? I am very well, sir. Thank you for uh, joining me this evening and taking your time to to be on the Sleeping Giant podcast. My pleasure. Awesome. So you are on the West Coast. Yes, in California. I saw that you had been uh, that you had been doing the convention circuit, as it were, doing a lot of conventions in California. And is that a, a new thing for you, or have you uh, are you a veteran of the the convention circuit? Uh, I've been doing it for. Uh... Oh, I don't know, maybe four or five years or so. Mm-hmm. It, it, you know, mostly SoCal, but occasionally I, I go further out. You know, I've been to Florida once and Guadalajara and Hawaii. And Well, that's a lot further than I've been, I think. <laughs> the furthest west I've made it to was Montana. And uh, I, I wasn't going to any conventions at that time. Beautiful part of the country, though. With the conventions such as they are now, have you have you noticed a sort of... And I've seen this almost a career renaissance of a sort of getting to introduce your work to to new people and and gain new fans and a new following. Has that proven to be the case? Yeah, you know that in a way is one of the reasons why I'm doing it is mm-hmm. uh, because I'm nearing the retirement age in animation or what I'm hoping will be my retirement age. and I, I think that if I can generate enough fandom and interest in what I'm doing, I can hopefully have a second act going here, you know, not just going to cons, of course, because that, that's not what you'd call terribly lucrative or anything, but sure. at least uh, maybe get into comics or something like that that I could do as a part-time type of gig that it helps if you have fans going in, I think. With a career like yours, I mean, you you have been an animator, you've been an animation director, uh, you, you've been the lead animator on several projects. I mean, it's just the list goes on and on. Some of the ones that stick out in my mind the most, of course, and uh, and I have to mention this because my wife made me promise, um, but she is a huge fan of Anastasia and the Swan Princess. Those are two of her favorite things in the world. And, uh, you know, you contributed to, to a large part of her childhood in, in that degree, and that, to me, is amazing. Uh, and for myself, of course, uh, working on Ralph Bakshi's Lord of the Rings, I mean, this, it's it's amazing the things that you've done. I, I would certainly hope that you're able to to you know launch forward and and continue from that. So, as an artist, what mediums inspired you when you were a child? Like, how did you get this ball rolling? Well, you know, as a real young kid and whatever, you know, I liked comics. You know, I, I read them to some degree, and I also read a lot of fantasy novels and stuff and admired the illustrations that were on them, you know, the Frazettas and the, that range, you know, the uh, Jeff Jones and such. Uh, and then that, that, those inspired me quite a bit as well as the comic book work of Gisema and Gil Kane and some of those people. You know, originally my intent was to get into illustration. Mm-hmm. I was leaving high school or was going to go to college for illustration. I never made it. Uh, the story that I tell often is how when I was in my first part of my senior year in high school, my uh, art teacher, who was advising me and helping me get my portfolio together, so happened to come across an ad in one of the trades or somewhere. I'm not sure where she found it, Variety maybe, mm-hmm. looking for 
artist's portfolio submissions. So she thought it might be a good way to uh, do two things. Uh, give me a professional portfolio critique to help me improve my what I put together for art school and also maybe take a little wind out of my sails because, you know, at that point, you know, every high school has got one, you know, one kid that's probably better than most of the other art students and stuff. And I happened to sure. be that one at, at uh, my high school. And unfortunately, she was wrong on both accounts. Uh, people don't give portfolio reviews when you apply for a job, which right. I'm surprised she didn't know that. But uh, they don't. And the fact that I got the job uh, didn't take any wind out of my sails. Just the opposite, I guess, for a while until I actually got the job and realized that I, I sucked as an artist compared to everyone else they were hiring. So, you know, the, uh, the school bent over backwards to help me finish my senior year in adult classes mm -hmm. and allowed me to take the job. That's basically how it all started rolling from there. That's amazing. So you doing what what you did and beginning your work in the career of animation, you at that point didn't feel that you had it, so to speak, especially being uh, surrounded by other talent. I mean, do you yeah. think that that's even a thing that that it exists? You know, I was very pleased with myself, of course, when I got the job. I thought, wow, this is great, you know, and stuff. And then, but when I uh, actually started work and saw what some of the other people did who were going to Arts Center and Cal Arts and you know, had gone to school for fine arts and whatever else. I was like, wow, I'm really lacking in my abilities and knowledge and stuff. So that humbled me quite a bit. But, you know, I still maintained and still hung in there and did very well. I mean, I kind of fit in in a lot of ways into the animation mm -hmm. uh, way of working more so than some of those others that had graduated or gone to those schools and stuff. Because for whatever reason, my frame of mind and my abilities jog very well with animation in in what ways how how would you say that that function uh, well i don't you know it's hard to say it's just it, i just had some natural instincts that seemed to work for it mm -hmm. um and also my only other serious job prior to that in the arts at least was uh, i had been a portrait artist at uh magic mountain back in the oh. day, theme park and i did that for I don't know what it was, a couple of years, I guess, in my, uh, you know, when I was 16, 17. Um, That's awesome. And that taught me a certain amount of uh, speed and uh, ability to uh, just focus on what was necessary. And so I think that all that kind of went right into animation in a good way. I mean, I, I didn't have a tendency to overdraw things. I didn't have a tendency to put extra lines in things that didn't need sure. either. You know, I was mostly working when I was doing portraits, most of it was uh, profiles and you have to learn to do a contour in that way. And that doing contour drawing is kind of fits into animation a lot better because you're working in just f creating an area for them to fill in with color. Sure. So it's more shape and, and less lines. Yeah. Worked well for me. You had mentioned also that in your earlier days that you had done some of the rotoscope portions on Baxi's Lord of the Rings, um, yeah. which we kind of talked about uh, just a, l a little bit ago. What did that experience teach you as as an artist and professional? Well, let me let me uh, first give you kind of the 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 uh, how it all ramped up. Originally, he was hiring a bunch of people to do what actually we was called at, at least at his studio, roto photo. 
And if you've seen Lord of the Rings, you, the, it was mostly orcs and stuff that mm -hmm. were, it was, they were photographed, it was shot in live action, and then they put them on the photographs, and they needed people, artists preferably, but artists that were unskilled labor for the most part, that could go in and draw fangs and eyes and things like that that could help make the costumes look more ferocious. And so that's what a lot of us were doing at the time. And, you know, he, he experimented a little bit using um, some of the non-orc characters, some of the fellowship doing that with them, too. And that was a little not quite as successful. And even some of the orc stuff wasn't as successful. But anyway, so that's what I was hired to do initially, along with dozens of other people, artists. And it turned out that I happened to be available and finished with my work when they were looking for an in-betweener or someone to help one of the other the real animators one of the paper animators you know mm -hmm. and they just said give him a try and so i did and i learned how to do some in-betweening work and stuff like that and for whatever reason ralph took a shine to me and when the opportunity came up he gave me a uh, long hundred foot scene to actually rotoscope for the film and you know if you don't know anything about film 100 feet is a lot of a long time it's, it's so, quite a bit <laughs> yeah. so that you know that that goes on for a long time and you know it was a scene that someone couldn't have screwed up too badly whoever he gave it to so he felt confident in me but i actually did a real good job of it and so from there it just kept going got better and better what i learned from rotoscoping was I, I was actually able to glean how to move things and you know i was picking it up through osmosis almost you know rotoscoping is one of the high skills that i have unlike some people feel it's not tracing it, to do a good job of it it's actually using it as a reference point and moving further away from it so that it doesn't look like rotoscope or it looks like just good animation but it was just one of those things i picked up to the point where at some point, I was able to animate without it, and it just kind of happened. It's just one of those things that, like I said, I picked it up through osmosis or something, and it just mm -hmm. kind of seeped into me. And so I was animating in relatively quick time. So within, you know, I'd say, God, I don't know, probably a five- or six-year process, I was doing full animation without rotoscope. Wow. Which is pretty unheard of for the most part. In fact, I was, <laughs> uh, at the time at least the time period, hired by Disney to step in and be an animator, which they didn't do at that time. They, they mm -hmm. would put people in to go through their training program and be in-betweeners and work their way up to animator. To be actually hired off the street to animate at the time I was hired was unusual. What are some of the unique challenges that a visual artist uh, encounters in terms of creating moving images? I mean, you, you have to... Especially if you, you know, I, I kind of specialize in human, for mm -hmm. the most part, realistic stuff. And you have to find a way to bridge the gap of it not looking stiff and keeping it alive and some cartoony enough so that it, it, it breathes a little bit. In animation, when you, if you were to just trace live action, per se, say it would be weird and stiff and floaty. I mean, you, mm -hmm. you see some of that in some of Ralph's films and other films like the, you know, even as far back as Gulliver's Travels, where you know, when you trace just live action, it, it, it becomes sort of that the original uncanny valley. 
<laughs> it's too realistic, right. but it's not realistic. And, you know, so you have to find a bridge for that. And I think I was able to do that pretty easily after a point where, you know, I just had a natural tendency to uh, yeah, kind of caricature movement and drawing and things. In fact, on uh, back when I was on American Pop for Ralph, even though I was considered one of his better guys, the uh, character designer had enough sway on it that she was upset at how much I would caricature mm-hmm. her um, designs over the rotoscope. You know, she wanted people to exactly trace the rotoscope, and I couldn't do that. I mean, I would go in and push it whenever I could and make it a little less rotoscope. So what ended up happening is to keep her happy and to keep me going and doing things is he took me off the main characters for the most part and put me onto miscellaneous characters like Jimi Hendrix and the, the Grace Slick character and, you know, Frankie, what I think her name was, you know, some of the other miscellaneous characters in the film mm-hmm. because he, he wanted me doing the work. He just didn't, you know, want to fight with uh, the character designer who had no sway that, you know, she got sure. Office politics, always, always yeah. a treat. And, you know, that was the look they were going for, and I would push it. And mm-hmm. I, uh, it was just, I, I just couldn't physically do it her way. With that, with that being said, and your sort of style that you've developed over this time, especially starting with your gigs with Bakshi, I've made the observation, and I, I could be, you know, injecting sort of my own opinion into it, but it seems that you're involved in or, or sometimes you incorporate a, a sort of a darker aesthetic into your designs. And is that intentional or a conscious decision? Uh, well, it depends. When I'm doing design work, it, it usually is um, dependent on what the project is and what mm-hmm. the character is and stuff. I mean, I do tend to have sort of a, uh, a look, a kind of, I get most people refer to it as kind of a comic book look and stylization to my character designs and stuff but you know on the other hand after being at disney for a while and drawing on model there i, I kind of gleaned sort of the disney aesthetic of uh, how their faces work and stuff like that and so a lot of that tends to kind of fuse together with my comic book styling and stuff so it, it kind of has become my own look and style that i guess other people recognize to me you know i don't know that it's that unique but other people seem to recognize it from project to project so if you hadn't have said that i don't think that i i would have picked it out but that does actually make perfect sense it's uh it's really funny we we watched the swan princess not too long ago because my daughter hadn't seen it before and i was paying very close attention uh to that and, and trying to pick it out and even though the tone of that film is different. And the overall style is, I don't want to say it's terribly different, but they're, you know, obviously it's uh, not quite as dark as, say, um, Fire and Ice, you know, or oh, no. <laughs> or The Lord of the Rings. Then, you know, but that is still there. And I, I always found that very impressive when you can look at somebody's work and, you know, within two or three seconds of, of seeing it, you know exactly who you're dealing with. You know, you know who the artist is. Uh, you know, I... Frankly, I was not aware that it was that obvious, but you know, I, I heard from other people that they recognized my stuff from project to project. So that's either they're, you know, just stroking me or they're uh, <laughs> recognizing it. Well, it's 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 funny you say that because the first time I ever consciously became aware of your work was with X Men Evolution. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that was at the point where, you know, I was reading Wizard Magazine and, and you know, getting all the updates and the scoop on upcoming projects and, and releases and just generally being a nerd. Um, you know, little did I know that I had already been absorbing all of this stuff as a child with the X-Men. Um, were you familiar with those characters and the stories beforehand or um, was it was it somewhat new to you when you were approached to uh, to work on this project? Well, <laughs> that, uh, way back when, when I was a real little, I'd read the Kirby Stanley X-Men, you know, with the, the main core group and stuff way back. Absolutely. And, you know, I was somewhat aware of them prior, since that point, but not much. I kind of stopped reading X-Men in general, but, you know, I was kind of, I'd seen like Neo Adams's take on it a little bit and, but I don't think I'd kind of dropped out of comics for a long period of time. And about the time that um, my uh, friend Boyd became the producer of X-Men Evolution, he wanted me to come on as a director. I wasn't hired as the character designer. I was hired as a direct one of the directors. Mm-hmm. And we, when we were all in development, all, all the directors and him and everyone else was trying to find something, find the look and find something we can hang our hat on as far as the the look of the show and the characters and you know he was he had handed me all types of stuff from uh adam hughes and um uh travis trey and um just different people so mike mignola stuff and whatever and i mean he was trying and all this was like new to me you know he gave Mm -hmm. me the ultimates by um brian hitch and so he was showing me kind of where he thought the show should go Mm-hmm. and stuff and plus he was just trying to bring me up to date as to what was going on because he knew that i you know he had kept up he you know he was one of those guys that had a poll list and stuff and yeah several of the other directors the same way but i i wasn't one i i was not aware in fact i i kind of knew that beast had turned blue and you know he looked different than what i'd been aware of him but due to the hair styling at mm-hmm. that point he had sort of that weird hair pointed hair and the wolverine hair yes exactly and so i thought side and scene i thought well maybe beast and wolverine were the same character i did not know that they were two different characters because of the weird hair i thought well okay maybe it's just before and after beast or you know i don't know sure so I, I was pretty far away from it i was somewhat aware of the um the 90s show mm-hmm. but i didn't watch it i couldn't stand the 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 bad animation and and plus I had a family and it just wasn't my thing. Sure. I was not into it. The animation is a little dated, I think. Well, dated and it was just, it was not done by very good subcontractors. And I think they even know that it was just, the designs weren't good enough or easy enough to animate. And on top of it, they didn't have very good uh, people doing the animation. It was all kind of farmed out cheaply and it showed. Um, that, that said, though, there were certain things that I had seen enough of it that, like Rogue, I just couldn't stand that character. The way the Southern Belle, you know, big-breasted Dolly Parton character with the bouffant hairdo and stuff. Right. So, um, and come X-Men Evolution, that was one of my intents is to try to create a Rogue where it was the, the complete opposite of that. Wow. And thankfully, uh, uh, Boyd had felt the same way about that and so we came instead of making her a southern belle with that sweet little accent you know she we knew she had to be from the south but we thought you know she would sound not pretty she would sound 
you know, like she'd grown up on the wrong side of the tracks. Right. And uh, that is incredibly fascinating. I I have a write-in question that comes from a good friend of mine. His name is Brian Byerly. He's the host of the Marvel Mythos podcast. And um, I told him I would try to, to sneak a question in here for you. Sure. And I, I think that it actually uh, it meshes very well with the point that you just made. And the question that he had was, was there a direction given that each character needed to represent an archetype, such as the jock, prep, class clown, or goth, or did the animators decide it? And I, I guess you kind of answered that question. Well, sort of. I mean, we, we, we kind of knew to some degree just where we wanted to go with them, but I don't think we were thinking, gee, we're going to make sure we cover everyone. Right. You know, none of us were thinking, gee, we're going to do uh, uh, The Breakfast Club. You know, that mm-hmm. did not even occur to us at the time, or if it occurred to someone, they, they didn't inform me about it. I mean, you know, as it turns out, you know, they a lot of the characters are representative of The Breakfast Club and, you know, all the archetypes from high school and stuff. You know, we, we knew we needed... Scott to be kind of a straight-laced guy, and we, we, you know, we decided for Jean instead of making her the cheerleader, we said we decided no, she's going to be a jock. So there were things that we did on purpose to change from what would be the obvious go-to right. for some of these characters. You know, like I, obviously Rogue, we we pushed in one direction, but you know, we weren't necessarily thinking, gee, that'd be great. It should be like the Ali Sheedy character or whatever. You know, right. You know, that didn't even occur to us at the time. So, but it, we just kind of fell into it, and it seemed to all work out nicely. That is awesome. I know he's really going to appreciate that. He did ask a follow-up to that, and uh, he had asked, is there any inspiration besides the comic books that went into the development of the costume design? Well, the costume design, well, there, there's two different costumes. I mean, there's the uniforms, and then there's civvies. Uh, actually, the uniforms, uh, the, one of the other directors kind of had a, a hand in some of them like uh, you know Frank Parr it, it, it was the other director it, he was one, another he was one of the directors that had a poll list and everything else at comic stores and you know he was much more involved in it so he kind of started the ball rolling with some of the costuming like I think he actually helped do a majority of uh, some of the uniforms like um uh, Cyclops and uh, Rogue. Yeah, I'm trying to think of it. Those two might have been the... Those two definitely he had a hand in. For my money, actually, I, the characters were designed in their civvies to work more mm-hmm. than uniforms. I don't think the uniforms did anything for them one way or the other. I think that it was more about how they looked in their casual clothes that kind of defined them. And I did a lot of research. At that point, I was not exactly a fashion icon or, you know, follower or anything right like that. So I, I had to go to uh you know uh, magazine stores and er, mm-hmm. magazine stands and pick up all types of weird fashion magazines and teen magazines which believe me it, not the most comfortable thing in the world you know you know uh, I, I think i was in my 30s at that point going right. to a newsstand picking up teen magazines <laughs> yeah. you know, unfortunately there was not google in those days so. right no, I, I can certainly relate I, I do a little collaging every now and then especially uh, with my daughter and you know I'm, I'm picking up magazines where i'll say oh you know or are you finished with that do you mind if i take this and i'm just like do they think i'm some kind of weirdo yeah. <laughs> but uh i can definitely definitely relate yeah with a team beat and a uh, skateboard magazine <laughs> sometimes it's like oh what's up with this dude yeah he's you know 
trying to stay in touch, man. Yeah. Um, so you were originally approached for uh, Evolution as the director, but obviously you've got a pretty a pretty impressive CV. So speaking in terms of being an animator uh, or a key animator and then animation director, what are the, the differences between those responsibilities? Well, as an animation director, it, it's mostly about responsibility. You make sure everyone is, you're in charge of everyone else's animation, making sure that they do what they need to do and you know, uh, directing them and correcting them and telling them what is expected before they start the scene. And then, you know, as they show you their tests and stuff, you have to basically critique and, you know, work with them on it. And also it relies on you to do as much animation as you can, um, which every time I've been animation directors, that's been pretty much the case. Uh, I very rarely had a chance to sit around and, uh, just wait for people to come to me. I was busy uh, working my butt off. Uh, key animator means that you're in charge of usually just one character or a couple mm-hmm. of characters and that you're setting the, the look for that character that other animators that are doing that same character will try to follow. It's not look, look. It's the way they behave and mm-hmm. act and stuff. You, you know, if you come up with some idiosyncrasy or something that a character does, then... The others should follow suit with it, or if there's a way that character moves and talks, then the others need to do the same thing. And you know, obviously, just as an, a regular animator, you, you're you know, you don't have that type of responsibility. You're just expected to do your scenes as well as you can. So, you do the work. Yeah. Gotcha. I I have seen some of the posts you've made on Instagram of some of the characters from X Men Evolution, and, yeah. and the one that comes to my mind is Nightcrawler. Uh, He has a very distinct way of standing and moving and walking. So is is that sort of, does that tie into the work of the key animator? Well, no, in that that case, that that was sort of a weird um, hybrid of my duties. I was a character designer, and um, we knew that we needed someone to do walk cycles, which is what those are, Mm -hmm. walk, run cycles. You must I never got to a run cycle, but with him and Beast and stuff, the really unusual characters I did. Someone needed, we needed someone to do those. And since I was the only animator on staff, I, it fell to me. And frankly, as a character designer, I, my preference, and it rarely happens this way, but my preference is I would ideally like to do either a walk cycle or some sort of scene of that character to make sure that my design is working before I finalize the design. It's nice to be able to try it out and move it around and say, okay, yeah, sure. that's working. Or, or you know what? My, yeah, that design thing that I added to it, that's not playing now that I'm trying to move it. You know, I'm going to re- rework my design a little bit. I think it's instrumental in that. I mean, if you are uh, familiar with, Uh, 2D animation at Disney in places, well, there aren't many places that were doing it to that degree, but they would usually do test animation of the characters and stuff before they settled off on a design, and often the character would change, you know, six months later because you discover something that's like, no, we really need this to work better, or, you know, that that animation is, is, you know, the animation is showing a mistake in the design that's not Mm -hmm. working something or gee the voice doesn't fit with that particular design so now we have to alter it to fit 
I mean, that that would be the ideal thing, but you know, you don't get a chance like to do that on TV shows or anything. So the wow. fact that he was able to go ahead and play around with these characters a little bit in um, uh, the walk cycles and stuff w- was nice. It, it allowed me to kind of fine tune my designs a little bit, and I also, you know, within a short period during the first season, there were scenes in the uh, original introduction, the, uh, uh, you know, the credits, the original mm-hmm. credits of the show that introduced the characters and stuff that I actually animated. So it gave me another step where I could actually play with the characters a little bit and see if my thinking was correct and stuff. So that is so cool. Did yeah. you have a favorite or do you have a favorite that you, that you worked on? Well, it, it varied. Um, the easiest one to draw by far, and I always do it when someone asks me for a quick little sketch with an autograph or something like that, is Wolverine, because that's just, you know, simple shapes. And But mm-hmm. it, favorite character, I'd have to say, is um, Rogue, because I like the fact that I kind of accidentally created this icon, in a way. Mm-hmm. So I, I like her a lot, and I, I like what I did with Wanda quite a bit. I uh, also liked uh, what, what happened with Boom Boom. Those three are sort of my fallback favorites just for the type of character they were and, and right. the fun I had in creating them. Thank you very much for sharing that. That was really cool. That <laughs> that really made like my whole month. You, you've obviously worked on quite a bit over the years and, and done a lot of impressive things, at least to my mind. Is there one particular design or animation throughout the years that you've worked on that, that you're most proud of? Well... Uh, it, for different reasons, there are different things. Like, I think my best animation that I've ever done was on Black Cauldron. But a lot of that had to do with the fact that there was plenty of time. Mm-hmm. You know, I was able to test and retest scenes until I got them right, and then I'd see them in between and be able to look at them and say, you know, uh, that's not moving fast enough, or that's moving too slow, or, you know, you know the different things. It, it played sure. with you know, the fact that there was that type of luxury. Uh, so it was more of a technical level on on Black Cauldron. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I can look at that and say, well, without you know, a doubt that that some of this animation I did in Black Cauldron, some of the best I've done in my career. There are other things that I've done that I've liked, and th- like you know, frankly, I think some of the dancing stuff in uh, X Men Evolution that I did, I think, would turned out really nicely. Uh, but you know, that was all down and dirty, sort of, in a lot of ways, where. I, I just did rough poses and stuff, and then we shipped it overseas with instructions for them to finish it. Sure. But, you know, just different things, you know, you know, project-wise, you know, Black Cauldron, although I like the animation, it's it not my favorite project. I, I, I think it could have been a, a lot better movie in a lot mm-hmm. better story told. Uh, I think Swan Princess gets pretty close to being a good story and stuff, I think, and the fact that there's so many fans of it for a non-Disney princess film. I think that mm-hmm. shows that I'm probably correct in that. I think we got, we, we kind of uh, caught magic in a bottle on that one. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I think X-Men Evolution, you know, it, it, and in a lot of ways, X-Men Evolution and Swan Princess are my fondest jobs just because I was involved in the creative aspect of it. You know, even, you know, even past doing character designs and being a key animator and director and stuff, I was involved and in, able to kind of work up the story and play with that and stuff and help make st- story decisions and stuff, which is, for me is always a big part of it. Wow. That that really is incredible. 
I am I am so glad to know, I'm so glad to know those things and and I, I want to thank you for uh, for sharing that, Steve. Sure. So you you had mentioned um, as far as what's on the horizon, you'd like to get back in the creator seat and perhaps work on some new comics. Do you have anything that you're working on? Um, do you have anything you're sitting on, or or are we just kind of working our way there? Well, it, it varies. Yeah, I. I just uh, middle of this year, a, a comic I've been working on for a while for a, not of my own, but mm-hmm. I did all the art for it. It, it was someone else's project. Uh, it was called The Headhunter. It was for uh, a small indie comic group called uh, Sit Comics and stuff. And, you know, he's got a whole series of these comics and stuff. And Headhunter is fits into the components of this bigger world that he's created and stuff. And I guess they do pretty well from what I gather and stuff. So... I mean, I'm pretty happy with how that turned out overall. And I did, prior to that, or during the same time, I did some comic work for uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs Incorporated, you know, some uh, Tarzan-based stuff. And uh, I did an online comic for them called The Eternal Savage that I'm very happy with a lot of it. And currently what I'm doing comic-wise is I'm working on, it's basically a uh, selling tool for these two screenwriters that are, trying to pitch a project and they mm-hmm. thought the best way to do it would be is to have a graphic novel version of it. And, uh, so I'm helping them with that. And that's kind of what I'm doing right this minute. Well, then um, your storyboards are already there. Yeah. Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and right now the thing is boy, graphic novels are selling tools like crazy. I mean, you know, it doesn't seem like not a week goes by where a, uh, new uh, project is an option and picked up or that, didn't start its life as a comic or a graphic novel or something. You know, writers, I hope you're listening. That's 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 where, yeah, that's I'm, I'm, where I you heard it here first. Know that, and I guarantee you, comic people know that. Yeah, you know there must be you know, like uh, just you know the, the, you, you, it's hard to throw a stone without hitting some show that wasn't based on a comic. Now that's probably not untrue. If people wanted to keep up with what you're working on and and just kind of get a really good look at some of the projects you've worked on in the past where can folks find you on social media well i'm on facebook i have uh besides my personal page i have a professional page called the art of stephen e gordon that you can locate on facebook uh i'm also on instagram stephen e gordon i mean i've had to use the the full stephen e gordon because there are other steve gordons in the business right uh, and you know, I'm on Tumblr and Twitter and stuff, but I don't use those much and don't even know how to for the most sure. part. Sure, I'm in the it's same boat, loosely attached to the others. Gotcha. Uh, but you know, and I do have a website that is sort of a quasi portfolio that has stuff on it. People can look at it if they Google my name, is Stephen E. Gordon. So, uh, you know, it's not up to date because I didn't don't run it or didn't put it together and mm-hmm. some. Someone did it for free for me, and uh, so I'm lax to ask him to do more free stuff. So, but, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's probably at this point ten years old or something, maybe somewhere in there. But you know, it's got a lot of my past stuff on it. So it's other than the current stuff that I've been doing, which has, a lot of it hasn't seen the light of day. Yeah, you know, it's you know still fairly fresh as far as most sure. people be interested. Well, I certainly hope that that fandom continues to grow and increase for you because that to me is just one of the coolest things. I, I hope so too. I thank you. <laughs> Abs- absolutely. Absolutely. So I, uh, I think that we are just about out of time for this evening. 
Um, but I, I just want to say again how grateful I am to ha- have had you on the show. I feel incredibly privileged. So thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. I appreciate the uh, ability to go on your show. Thank you. Absolutely. You bet. You have a good night, Steve. You too. Take it easy. One more time, I'd like to extend a warm and heartfelt thank you to Mr. Gordon for sharing his time with the Sleeping Giant podcast, and I hope that you enjoyed listening to him as much as I did. Make sure that you give Mr. Gordon your likes and follows across the social media board as he's always updating his Facebook and Instagram with fascinating deep cuts and illustrations from throughout his career. And uh, they they are a genuine pleasure to see. Again, you can find him on Instagram at Stephen E. Gordon and on Facebook at The Art of Stephen E. Gordon. While you're at it, if you have never seen Ralph Bakshi's 1977 animated version of The Lord of the Rings, it is a treat, and I vehemently urge you to check it out. By the time this episode goes live and makes its way to various podcatchers and apps, we will be well into the holiday season, and I would like to wish you all a happy Thanksgiving, those of you who celebrate, and uh, I'd like you to know... Uh, regardless of whether or not you celebrate, of course, that I am incredibly thankful for your listenership and for supporting the Sleeping Giant podcast. Just just know that. Once more, I've been your host, Grayson Parker Marcotte. Thank you for listening to the Sleeping Giant podcast, and until next time. <laughs>